Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us once again, guys. Where does the time go? We're here again. I know, Christ. These poor people having us in their ear holes week in, week out. I know, just unsubscribe maybe. That's probably the best thing you guys could do. Um, <laughs> please don't tell our listeners to unsubscribe no, please don't. to us. <laughs> please make sure you do subscribe, actually, because there's probably a lot of people that listen that haven't actually subscribed. So give it a go. Press subscribe. Why not? What have you got to lose? Nothing. Um, this week, we would like to thank our brand new Patreon supporters, and in fact, all of our Patreon supporters uh, for their support. So this week, we have Laura Rogers, Holly Cousins, and Pearl Rose. Thank you so much, guys, uh, for your support, for taking the time to head over to Patreon and sign up and support us. It means so much to us, and it really makes a difference between us producing the show or not producing the show. Um, so thank you uh, from from both of us. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. And if anybody else would love to support us as well on Patreon, you can head to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. And there's loads of different tiers with all different things involved and, and different goodies that you get for signing up. So yeah, thank you very much, everybody. Um, So this week we are moving away from murder, although there will still be a very tragic death at the heart of today's story. But we're once again talking about fraud. And I think that I was thinking about it. I think fraud is almost in the DNA of this show because we are both fascinated by fraud. And if you remember our very first case, John Palmer, um, then you will know that we started talking about fraud from the very beginning. And he was brutally murdered, too. So that case kind of had everything. But um, yeah, I just think it's something that fascinates both of us. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's something that we almost keep getting like drawn back to in little ways here and there and then we're like oh yeah we need to do a fraud case yeah definitely agree and I wonder if it's because we've both had a background in financial services maybe that means that um I don't know we're exposed to it a bit more and we see it a bit more I I just don't know yeah interesting I think that's I think that's really true because you do get um told so often of what to look out for and and how to do your job and repeatedly so that you're doing the best job you can possibly do. Plus, Mark, you are obsessed with money. That is so true. I've always been obsessed with money. So uh, yeah, it's probably no surprise that I, I'm drawn to fraud, uh, not to commit it, just mm-hmm. to other people that have committed it. Yeah, because you just think to yourself, oh, they've done it but you just know that you wouldn't get away with it so you just think like oh there's no point in trying I think honestly I think that's it I'd never do it but I know that there is part of me that always admires people that commit fraud and certainly people who get away with it even though it's never a victimless crime and you'll really see that more than ever through today's story um but yeah I think there is definitely a part of me that's uh that romanticizes it I guess well, yeah, because you're never going to romanticise someone murdering someone, no. brutally attacking people or anything like that. However, with something like this, there is always that, I mean, that they wouldn't make movies where they glamorise it if it wasn't, if, you know, more than just you who kind of beha- behaves like that. And you think of like that film, um, Catch Me If You Can. I think that was probably the first film I ever saw about someone being a naughty boy and fraudulently doing something. And I just, yeah. Might have just, is that Leonardo DiCaprio? I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. Might have just been because he's fit, but <laughs> either way, 
So this week's case features a fraudulent lottery claim and it's a tragic case about greed, betrayal and suicide. But joyously, the man at the centre of today's story was brought to account just when it looked like he might get away with his crime forever. Spoiler alert for you there. (laughs) Spoiler, I was going to say. (laughs) But that does make me feel a bit happier because that sounds awful that there's a suicide involved in this case. That's really, really tragic. I think also that I wanted to just kind of get it out there at the beginning that this is a solved case and the perpetrator was brought to account because I've covered, we we talked about it last week, but I've covered so many cases recently that are unsolved and I I really wanted to come uh, to bring something that was solved this week. Since the National Lottery's inception some 26 years ago, more than 5,700 millionaires have been created in this country. And I did a bit of number crunching and it wouldn't work out as an exact science, but roughly one in 12,000 people in this country has been made a millionaire by the National Lottery. Wow. How mad is that? And I'm not one of them. Me neither. But technically, if you knew 12,000 people, the odds are that one of them would have been made a millionaire by the lottery. Since the first draw on the 19th of November in 1994, a total of £56 billion has been paid out in prizes and the National Lottery operator Camelot have said the luckiest profession is... Any guesses? Um, somebody who works in a kitchen. A chef. No. Building. Oh. So builders are the most common winner. Uh, That's the most common profession for a winner. And the city which has produced the most millionaires at 119 is... Any guesses for this one? Oh my gosh, this is so much fun. Um, I know you love a guessing game. I do. I'm literally guessing for no apparent reason with these as well. I'm going to go with Liverpool. Okay, it's Birmingham. Oh, wait, so you weren't Birmingham too was my far next out. guess because of your background, and I was literally going to say Birmingham, and then I stupidly went with Liverpool. Damn it. You fucked up. Oh my God. Can we re record this and I'll get all the answers right and tell our listeners I'm amazing? No. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Birmingham, 119 millionaires. How amazing is that? On the 28th of August in 2009, 44-year-old Edward Putman phoned Camelot to inform them that he had the winning lottery ticket from the March 11th draw in his hand. With the 180-day claim deadline drawing near, Camelot worker Maureen Bazin quizzed him on why it had taken him so long to make that call. Putman, a builder, but from Hertfordshire, informed her he had found the ticket under the driver's seat in his van and when she told him the prize was £2,525,485 he said, oh you're joking, what am I going to do with that? Putman explained to Maureen that the ticket was badly damaged and was missing the bottom section which contained the barcode and other important serial numbers. He explained he had a habit of ripping things up and writing phone numbers down. Maureen explained to Putman she would send a Camelot representative to his home to validate the ticket and ending the call Putman said I'm having palpitations and all kinds of things at the moment I don't know what to do. Oh my god you'd be in absolute shock two and a half million. Yeah you completely set for life off two and a half million pounds. I can't even imagine what would go through your head when you realise you've won. I remember we used to sit at work didn't we and like what would we buy what would we do what would be the first thing we'd purchase. And we'd always dream of our lottery wins, but 
This is this is crazy. And then we'd go on right move and look at all the amazing houses we could buy. Yeah, uh, still not happened, but who knows? It could still happen. Camelot worker Dot Renshaw visited Putman early the following week and conducted a number of checks on the ticket. She explained to Putman that they would not be able to pay the price straight away as the ticket was badly damaged and would therefore need to undergo a number of additional checks to confirm its validity. Now, it wasn't unusual for Camelot to be presented with a damaged ticket. On the contrary, it was quite common and people have even received their winnings in the absence of a physical ticket. And they've done this by confirming the date and time of the purchase, the location, the card they paid for it with, and all of that can then be confirmed by Camelot. So Dot Renshaw wasn't particularly suspicious when she saw the state of the ticket. She knew there were other ways that they could check that it was genuine. Putman told Dot when and where he'd bought the ticket, how he'd paid for it, cash, and the ticket showed that the numbers had been selected by Lucky Dip, where the lottery machine randomly selects the numbers for the player. Additionally, Camelot were able to verify that the winning ticket had two Lucky Dip lines printed on it. They were able to see what numbers were generated on that second line, and that was an exact match for Putman's ticket. Additionally, a two-digit number known as a checksum was evident on the ticket Putman had presented and this two-digit number matched the checksum produced on the winning ticket. So we will go into a bit more detail a bit later on in terms of um, some of the other checks that they conducted, but at the moment, just to keep it not complicated, we'll leave it there. I find it so interesting because... I don't know very much about the lottery and something that always freaks me out is what if you win but you've lost your ticket and it makes me feel a little bit calmer that as long as you can then prove when, where, what time, etc. that you bought your ticket, there's the chance then that they will say, do you know what, yes, you are correct or they can then find the CCTV from that shop or something about that you did it. And then, yeah, that they can do all these checks as well. It's so interesting. Yeah, they can. They could literally, if you'd paid on a card, for example, they would literally be able to trace that transaction back to that card. So they would know that it was your card. They would look at CCTV, like you said, so they would see you entering the shop, purchasing the ticket at the time that you said you bought it and at the time that the winning ticket was purchased. So there is an awful lot they can do, even in the absence of a ticket, to prove that the winner is the winner. So nevertheless, it was still a bit of a risk for Camelot, but they were satisfied that Putman was the winner in that draw. All that was missing was the barcode, but surely with everything else matching up, it would be too much of a coincidence for this not to be the winning ticket. After all, how could Putman possibly have managed to forge a ticket on actual national lottery paper with the correct checksum? How could he have known when and where the ticket was purchased, how it had been paid for? what the numbers were on the second line on the ticket. It was a no-brainer, really. They knew Putman was genuine. And on the 8th of September, about 10 days after he phoned Camelot, they validated his ticket. At this point, he was visited once again by Dot Renshaw, the Camelot worker, and this time also by a representative from St. James's Bank, a private bank, which had a contract with Camelot. Two days later, Putman's winnings were paid into his new account and he began spending with gay abandon. But, of course, the ticket wasn't genuine and Putman had pulled off one of the most audacious scams in any lottery's history. 
but how? Well, before we answer that question, let's hear from the first sponsor of today's show. Oh, what a place to stop because that is shocking. Teasing you all, aren't I? Such a tease. So we left the story by asking how Putman had got away with this. Uh, We'll now go into a bit more detail. So we'll go back in time. So in 2007, Putman was working on the home of Giles Nibs, who was in his late 20s at the time. He was fitting a new kitchen because he was a builder and the two men got talking and Giles told Putman that he worked for the lottery operator Camelot at their headquarters just a few miles away in Watford. Explaining that he worked in the fraud department, Putman quizzed Giles further, gaining a unique insight into the operational aspects of his job, how the company validated tickets, how prizes were paid out. Perhaps at Putman's instigation, the two men became friends and sometime later in 2007, Putman asked Giles if he could produce a false ticket so that he could play a trick on his friends. Now, it's not clear if Giles obliged, but it is clear at this point that Putman knew that Giles could forge tickets and over the coming months he ramped up the pressure on Giles to produce a fake winning ticket that the pair could use to scam the National Lottery. Oh dear, this is going back to one of our old episodes, but loose lips sink ships. Why is Giles nattering on about his job in the fraud? He's obviously showing off, but of course, if somebody's then going, they're going to put some pressure on you to try and get you involved. If someone's a bit dodgy anyway, they're going to seize that opportunity and leap on it and manipulate that person. I kind of feel sorry for Giles because I bet he got really swept up with all this, but... Also, just don't start telling people about the ins and outs of your job. If it's something quite important and private, maybe don't talk about it to a builder in your kitchen. Yeah, agreed. And it was probably in his contract to not divulge any details yeah, of I his job. so. So whilst working late one night in 2009, so this is a couple of years later now, Giles saw documents being printed containing details of big wins which had not yet been claimed. On the list was a winning ticket bought at a co-op store in Worcester on March the 11th in 2009 for a draw that same day. The winning numbers were 6, 9, 20, 21, 31 and 34 and all six numbers were a match for the jackpot which stood at £2,525,485. Other details were included about the winning ticket, including how it had been paid for, how many lines were on the ticket and what the numbers were on those lines. It also included whether the numbers had been chosen by the player or whether they had been selected by the machine. And Giles recorded this information and then presented it to Putman. So the plan was for Giles to print a forged ticket with the correct date on, the correct numbers on and the correct checksum that two-digit code that would feature on the winning ticket. The plan was then to tear off the barcode and the serial number at the bottom because these two identifiers were unknown to Giles and if he just produced a ticket with a random barcode and serial number, that would immediately identify the ticket as fraudulent. This ticket would then be presented with just days to spare before the 180-day claim deadline thus putting pressure on Camelot to react quickly and also this ensured that any CCTV from the store where the ticket had been purchased would have been erased. It was just all too easy and Putman and Giles set about turning their plan into a reality. 
Giles printed the forged ticket, they waited until the 28th of August, and then Putman made the call to Camelot, and the ticket was validated and the prize was paid. Giles was promised a million pounds for his part in the scam, but Putman refused to pay him his fair share. Oh no, that's so savage. What? He's done all the hard work. And taken huge risks. Oh my god! It just makes me so angry when people renege on these kind of deals. Yeah. So instead of the million pounds that had been agreed, which to be honest, let's be honest, that is still less than half of the total win. that's what I was thinking. And he's done all the hard work, like you say. So instead of a million pounds, he, uh, Putman handed over £280,000 to Giles and then a further £50,000 in small increments over a number of years. And I kind of got the impression that, I'll come on to it a bit more, that Giles had kind of burnt through that 280 grand quite quickly, was then going back to Putman and putting pressure on him for more of his share. And all he got was just dribs and drabs that only even totaled up to 50 grand over years. Whilst neither of them are particularly great for having done the fraud and, and having committed that crime, that's really, really horrible. Like, you you promised him a million, give him a million, and then to make him almost come come crawling and begging for it, and then giving him, like, crumbs off your plate, it's just disgusting. But also, you shouldn't have done it in the first place. <laughs> no, but I couldn't have explained that in a better way or described it in a better way. Oh, it was li- It was literally <laughs> crumbs off a plate. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So, meanwhile, Putman set about living the millionaire lifestyle, indulging in five-star holidays and purchasing multiple homes and cars. At one point, he had a dozen cars. Giles quit his job a few months after receiving the £280,000, possibly fearing that this scam might be uncovered if he stayed there. Um, or maybe he just thought, well, I, maybe he didn't like his job and he thought, I can leave and I've got some money to live off now. Yeah, I don't know whether I'd want to stay and keep my ear to the ground so I could listen out if somebody started talking about the the idea that maybe it had been found out. I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to be there still. It's very interesting. I thought exactly the same, but then part of me also thought, can you imagine going to work every day, um, being surrounded by colleagues, knowing you did what you did, and maybe just waiting for that tap on the shoulder Mm, in the office? That is so true. And if you're not there, yes, it might be a knock at the door from the police, but um, I don't know. I I think actually I would prefer that to being um, apprehended at work. I don't know. And I think your colleagues as well are going to be talking about Oh, it's so disgraceful what someone did. All you know, you work in the fraud department, so you're going to be yeah. people are going to be like, "Oh, this person tried to fraudulently claim a winning ticket and stuff." So, yeah, maybe you wouldn't want to be sat there listening to that day in day out. No. So Putman had kept his win a secret from friends and family, and of course the press too. When Camelot had validated the ticket and paid the prize, they offered to arrange a press conference for him to tell the country all about his unlikely win how he had found the ticket in his van with just days to spare. But he refused any publicity, perhaps not wanting to encourage any poking around into his win that might jeopardise its legitimacy. In 2012, however, this decision to go public was taken away from Putman when he found himself in court convicted of benefits fraud. What an absolute twat. Oh my God. He's got, like... How much has he got? Two and two million. He's got one and a half million quid like left. No, yeah, two million odd. Yeah, yeah, but but like now he's probably got less left. But what the? F- oh my god, that's horrendous. 
In order to claim benefits, Putman needed proof from his doctor of his mental health problems and also a signed document confirming that he would notify the authorities if his condition changed. When he failed to attend a medical checkup in 2009, his benefits were suspended before being officially ended in April the following year. And of course, this was around the time of his win, so I'm guessing he had a lot going on at the time, and also he just didn't need the money, so he probably couldn't even be bothered to attend that medical Mm. appointment because it was just a few grand that he was missing out on. However, in July of 2010, Putman wrote to the DWP begging them to reinstate his benefits. He claimed he did not attend that medical appointment in 2009 because he was too ill. In his letter he said, I'd lost a lot of weight and had a lot to deal with, no shit. I didn't know whether I would still be alive. I'm on the brink of being evicted. And he also wrote to Decorum Borough Council, saying that he had been forced to survive on handouts from his family and friends and had not been able to pay his council tax or rent, apart from putting £200 towards it, which he had borrowed from family. As a result of all this begging, his benefits were reinstated and also backdated at his request to January 2010. Oh my god, I hate this guy. What the hell? This is horrible. However, suspicions were raised in October that year when he tried to buy his council house with £84,000 in cash. (laughs) What an idiot. Why is this guy such an idiot? idiot. Oh my god. I know. Subsequent checks found he had one account with £100,000 in it and that he also had an account with St James's Bank. As I said earlier, they are an exclusive private bank that have a contract with Camelot and they are not the sort of bank available to somebody on benefits. No offence to anybody on benefits, but you will not get an account with them unless you have a serious amount of money. Yeah, they just wouldn't even let you in the front door. They're so... No. Yeah. So exclusive. Mm -hmm. So obviously a lot of alarm bells were ringing um, with the authorities at this point. Bank statements presented to the court showed that on September the 10th in 2009, a sum of just over £2.5 million was credited to his account. And it uh, it was said in court that that was from the National Lottery. And that's when it all got out then in the press, because it was a, a story that was in the public's interest. Putman had claimed a total of £4,809 from Decorum Borough Council between September 2009 and October 2010, and that was for housing and council tax benefit. And he'd also claimed £8,033 from the DWP between September 2009 and May 2010, and that was for income support. Putman admitted the fraud and paid the money back, but he was sentenced to prison for this crime. The sentencing judge at his trial said his deceit was so audacious and his culpability so grave that normal sentencing guidelines for benefit fraud had little application in this instance. As such, he jailed him for nine months. And the judge described Putman's actions as calculated a piece of deception as anyone could imagine. And he said it was agreed on a scale which frankly defies belief. Imagine if he knew what he'd done about the lottery. (laughs) I know, and can you imagine at this time, although Putman's an absolute dick, uh, he must have been shitting himself because this is all getting out in the press. He's now going to prison and the prisoners are going to know he's a lottery winner. Can you imagine going to prison and and that's an open secret? The kind of blackmail that you'd be susceptible Mm -hmm. to, yeah. 
So after his trial in 2012 for benefits fraud, it also emerged that Putman had previously been convicted of rape and he was sentenced to seven years in prison for that in 1991. He'd been found guilty of breaking into a property and raping and seriously assaulting a 17-year-old girl who was pregnant at the time. Wow. I know, and his victim was punched so hard that she said she thought her head would cave in. Can you imagine being punched that hard that you're literally thinking this person's going to fracture my skull? Yeah. So he was a thoroughly bad guy because it also came to light that in the 1980s he'd been convicted of wounding a neighbour as well. So he was just a violent guy, a rapist and had also now been convicted of benefits fraud and this is before the national lottery scam had even come to light. So Putman served his nine months or thereabouts and when he came out of prison he continued to live a lavish lifestyle but this was seriously starting to grate on Giles now. He'd run out of money and was angry with Putman for not paying him the million pounds that had been agreed. Giles, not unsurprisingly, had spiralled into a depression and he'd become quite paranoid that the scam would be uncovered. He felt guilty and he'd taken such a huge risk. And for what, a few hundred grand? He had been betrayed by a man he thought was a friend too, and he was out for revenge. Giles's behaviour had become increasingly erratic since the scam, and he'd begun revealing details of the fraud to friends, perhaps in a desperate attempt to ease his conscience. Now at breaking point, he confronted Putman in a heated argument in June 2015, breaking his wing mirrors and stealing his phone. He demanded his share of the winnings and threatened to expose the scam if he didn't get what he was owed. But Putman didn't back down. Instead, he reported Giles to the police and Giles was subsequently arrested for burglary, blackmail and criminal damage. Can you believe that? Oh my God, the cheek of him. The the absolute temerity of this. Yes. Absolutely horrific. You you would just, a normal person in Putman's shoes would be shitting themselves and would be like, I'm just going to pay up or I'll I'll do something, but I'm not going to report him to the police because it's definitely all going to come out then. But he did. So the police took all of those claims seriously and they charged Giles with criminal damage, burglary and um, blackmail as well. While awaiting trial, Giles could not help but reflect on how his life had come to this. Before he'd met Putman, he had a great job that he loved, a partner who he loved and who loved him, and a nice lifestyle. But he'd risked it all and any spoils were now long gone. A few months later, a few months before the trial was due to start in October, Giles's partner returned home and found a package with a letter in it from Giles. The letter opened by saying, By the time you read this, I will have taken my own life. That night, Giles killed himself at Ivinghoe Beacon, a landmark in Buckinghamshire. God, you can totally understand why he would feel like that was his only choice as well. Yeah, he was convinced that he was going to go down for 10 to 15 years. Mm. Not not for the lottery scam, but for the charges that had been brought against him. The package with the letter in it also contained a mobile telephone that contained a number of messages that Giles asked his partner to send to four pre-programmed numbers. The package also included letters addressed to the children of Putman's partner, although it has not been reported what these letters said. 
Fucking hell, it took me about 10 goes, didn't it, Bethan, on that one? The children of Putnam's partner, blah, 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 blah. Mm. Bethan said it's like a tongue twister. The messages Giles had asked to be forwarded to the four pre-programmed numbers from beyond the grave were damning, and they unravelled his and Putman's deception. It's not clear who these messages were sent to, but 17 days after Giles' suicide, the police charged Putman with fraud by false representation following a short investigation into this lottery scam. At the time, a spokesman for Hertfordshire Police said, A man has been charged after an investigation into an alleged lottery fraud. Edward Putman, aged 53 and from Station Road, Kings Langley in Hertfordshire, was charged with fraud by false representation following an alleged fraudulent claim of a lottery prize. He went on to say, The incident occurred in 2009 when a claim was made for an outstanding lottery prize. A lottery ticket was submitted and a prize of £2.5 million was paid out. After a protracted investigation, ultimately Hertfordshire police did not have enough evidence to proceed with a case against Putman. He was told he faced no further action in February of 2016 unless any new evidence came to light. What? I know, and the main issue um, at this time was that Camelot couldn't locate the actual ticket that Putman had used to claim the prize. Had they been able to find it, experts would have been called in and they would have definitely been able to prove that it was a forgery. But without the actual ticket, the case was literally dead in the water. And I suppose they've got Giles's confessions, but that doesn't that doesn't have to prove anything. It could have or you know, you could say that that was just someone trying to be spiteful without that ticket to really back those claims up, I suppose I can understand. But that's so frustrating. Yeah. I think it's interesting, though, that it never came to light initially that when Giles was charged with uh, the burglary and blackmail and criminal damage to property, it's interesting it didn't really come to light because they knew who the victim of that was, i.e. Putman. They maybe they well, they wouldn't have known that Putman had won the lottery, would they? Not unless it was spoken about and brought up no yeah i mean it what it had been in the papers but yeah that's not necessarily going to be on, on on his lips so they're not going to see that but otherwise that would have been quite interesting they'd have known that um giles worked for the national lottery they would have then known that he was causing damage to someone who had won the national lottery but it was a long time afterwards though i i True. just don't see that you'd even put the link those together at all really yeah, I get that. It's it's one of those. It's easy with hindsight. And even yeah, with absolutely. hindsight, it's, it's far-fetched. When the fraud was reported to Hertfordshire Police in 2015, they were obliged to inform the Gambling Commission, Camelot's regulators. And whilst the CPS were not able to build a case against Putman, the Gambling Commission did thoroughly investigate the claims and they actually fined Camelot £3 million for breaching its operating licence regarding controlling databases, investigating prize claims and paying out on prizes. And they, they concluded in their report that that ticket was most probably forged. So that was in the public domain. Everybody knew that Putman had forged this ticket and scammed the lottery out of £2.5 million, but it couldn't be proven. So they couldn't claim the money back. He couldn't be charged with that crime. So at this point, Putman was a free man. He'd not been tried. He was innocent as far as the law was concerned, free to carry on spending his winnings. And I really feel at this point that this guy has literally gotten away with it. 
He must have just been laughing at the judiciary, laughing that his former friend, the one person who was a threat to him, has gone, has now killed himself and removed him as a threat. And I just hate Putman so much at this point. Oh my God, me too. He's just horrendous. And yes, he's done his time for his crimes in the past, but I keep remembering that he'd also done those. And then to now, like the fact that they've basically gone... The ticket probably was forged, but there's nothing we can do about it. Like, what the hell? I think it would have massively annoyed me if he had genuinely won the lottery and then had claimed benefits and was a rapist. All of that would annoy me and make me think that anybody that breaks a law shouldn't really be allowed to play the lottery and win. Um, But the fact that he scammed it and, uh, yeah, I can just literally picture him sat at home in one of his big houses because he owned two in Hertfordshire, sat there laughing to himself that he's literally got away with it. Yeah. So... um. Before we carry on with the episode and come to the what I think is probably the best bit, because it did all unravel for Putman. Good. Um, I know. So we left our story in 2017, 2016, uh, where it looked as though Putman might just get away with his crime. But in 2017, a Camelot employee located the ticket he had presented all those years earlier. Yes, can you imagine being that person? You're like, I have found that ticket. Oh my God. And I get the impression that Camelot had somebody onto this since 2015. I don't think they let this die, even though technically they'd been betrayed by Giles, one of their workers. I think it just ended so tragically that they almost owed it to him to bring Putman to justice. So I honestly can just envisage them having one person hunting through offices in Camelot and drawers or wherever and looking for this bloody ticket until it was found. And it took them two years, but they damn well found it. Yeah, good for them. And with this key piece of evidence, they were able to bring the case to court. Putman's trial began in September last year in 2019 at St Albans Crown Court. Setting out his case for the prosecution, James Keeley told the court Giles worked for Camelot in Watford between 2004 and 2010, and his role in the fraud detection department allowed him the opportunity to create the false ticket which he had then given to the defendant to cash in. The court was also told how Giles had seen that document containing details of the big wins that had not been claimed, how the pair had set the wheels in motion for their scam, and the jury were told how Putman had used his winnings to buy two homes in Hertfordshire, one for £600,000 and another for £400,000, and that he had also bought a fleet of cars, around a dozen cars were shown uh, in his driveway at one point. The jury also heard from Andrew Suckley, a former partner of Giles. In a statement, Andrew said, There was a delay between the draw and Eddie claiming the ticket because Giles was experimenting with printing tickets. Giles had to throw a few tickets away. This took a month. His statement continued, Giles felt let down and betrayed by Eddie and told me he was expecting to receive a million pounds or more for his part in the fraud. I wonder if this is the partner who was he was with when he did commit suicide because you'd be so absolutely devastated to lose the person you love anyway but then also to then understand a bit more about what led to that point you'd absolutely be hating Putman even if you felt disappointed with your partner for the fact that they'd had a part in this fraud 
I won. I don't know for definite because it it just says it's just a former partner. But you just I don't know. I do wonder if it's the person who I, he was with at the time. No, I don't. I don't think it was. No. I think the partner that Putman was with at the time, the guy who found the suicide note, had been with Putman for five years, so since two thousand and ten. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really interesting with with this guy Andrew. Um, they'd obviously been in a relationship. The lottery scam then happened in two thousand and nine. Putman didn't get his fair share. He then leaves his job. He kind of spirals into a bit of a depression, and he's acting quite erratically and quite understandably this relationship came to an end around that time oh i see yeah so i I think it's a real it's really symptomatic of how fucked up giles's life became very quickly after this scam was pulled off in a message to putman found on giles's phone he'd written you have let this relationship down through greed confrontational behavior and arrogance The court was told that Giles had created a hundred different specimens of the forged ticket, each with a different combination of that checksum, which was the two-digit code that would be on the winning ticket. So Giles didn't know what that code would be, but he knew that there could only be 100 possible combinations. So what they basically did was, as the deadline was... um, fast approaching Putman visited different shops with a different ticket and asked the cashier to validate the ticket because they just kind of put it through their machine or type some numbers in and um, each time the check number the check sum was wrong it would be like yeah that's not a valid ticket but when on his 29th yeah on his 29th visit to a shop in High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire on the 28th of August in 2009, that checksum that was on that ticket uh, was the correct checksum because the shopkeeper said, that's a winning ticket. I don't know how much the prize is, but it's telling me that you need to contact Camelot. Christ, that is absolutely so in-depth to of how they found that number out. So that that's literally, yeah, how they managed to work out what the checksum was because there's no way that Giles could have just come up with a random two-digit number um, because, again, that, that would show... You've got a one in a hundred chance of it being the same number that's mm-hmm. on the winning ticket and Camelot knew what, what that number was, but Giles didn't. And that number was at the top of the ticket. It wasn't at the bottom. So it's not like they could just rip that off. It had to be on the ticket. Mm-hmm. At the end of the two-week trial, jurors found Putman guilty of fraud by false representation. The genuine winning ticket which was bought in Worcester has never been discovered. So somebody bought that ticket on the 11th of March in 2009. They bought the winning ticket, subsequently lost it and didn't check that that was a winning ticket. So they lost out on that money, which is also really sad, isn't it? And I suppose that's why they give you like, is it 180 days? Because yeah. otherwise you might find it 10 years down the line. So I think it's kind of fair that if you're playing the lottery, you've got a bit of time that you need to, you know, put your numbers in and then that's that. So yeah, that person, when this trial came out, may well have gone, shit, that was my ticket. Yeah. But there's nothing you can do now. No, because it would have said the date, the exact mm-hmm. location that it was at a co-op in Worcester, um, so and it, that it was lucky dips and also this ticket was uh it's been photographed and that that's been released to the media so although they were lucky dips so the numbers might not spring to anybody's mind they might remember that i always buy two lucky dips or the numbers look vaguely familiar or, or like the shop you always go to but yeah it was um 
it would have been too late for them, unfortunately. And part of the £3 million fine that the Gambling Commission imposed on Camelot was to encompass the total amount of the jackpot that would have actually gone to good causes, to charity, had the genuine uh, winner not come forward, which they didn't, um, and had Putman not done this scam. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. After the verdict, the CPS said that they would take steps to recover the fraudulently acquired winnings and the District Crown Prosecutor, Tapashi Nadaraja, said Edward Putman deceived the National Lottery operators with his winning ticket, making him a millionaire, but his lies unravelled with the tragic death of his co-conspirator, who he wasn't prepared to share the money with. She went on to say, we used accounts from Nibs' friends, that's Giles, as well as documented evidence on his phone and financial transactions to build a compelling case against Putman. This was further strengthened by indisputable evidence provided by an expert in the scientific examination of questioned documents. They found significant differences between the printing on genuine tickets and that on Putman's ticket, concluding that this ticket was not genuine. A Camelot spokesman said, We're aware of today's verdict and we are pleased that this case, dating back to 2009, has now come to a conclusion. It related to a unique, one-off incident over a decade ago involving a prize claim on a deliberately damaged ticket. It had nothing to do with the National Lottery draws themselves. As we acknowledged back in 2016, there were some weaknesses in some of the specific controls relevant to this incident at the time and we're very sorry for that. We've strengthened our processes significantly since then and we are completely confident that an incident of this nature could not happen today. Uh, So Putman was, I can't remember if I said, but he was sentenced to nine years in prison for this. Nine years, that's really good because I think the impact this has had it's not just he just did it once he's he's really impacted so many other areas of his life other people's lives and I think that goes some way to kind of bringing something for Giles's family a little bit as well that at at least he was trying to get this fraud put into the public knowledge and actually it it finally has been I feel like you'd be a little validated it's never going to bring your loved one back whatsoever but you would feel at least that has now happened. Yeah, I, I feel that Giles and his friends and family have have got retribution, not for themselves, but I can't. I don't know if that's the right word, but that they, they have. Yeah, got... Yeah, it's not justice, no. but it's almost something, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost like revenge. They needed almost to get revenge on Putman, and and they were able to bring him down. And I love that Giles was able to bring him down from beyond the grave. But I just think it's so sad that he lost his life and felt there was no other option than to commit suicide, um, which is really, really sad. I also wonder if Giles was vulnerable at the time, and I'm not making excuses because what he did was totally wrong, but it, but you do wonder if he was predisposed to depression, if he was in debt, uh, if Putman was putting a lot of pressure on him, maybe he was blackmailing him. Um, I just don't know. So, um, so yeah, I think Putman was certainly the uh, the mastermind in this, and Giles was a pawn in that game, really. Oh, absolutely. I I don't like what Giles has done. I think that's really wrong, and I I hate that he's done something that's taking advantage of his work and a job that he 
actually really enjoyed that sort of thing. But yeah, Putman is just, I just hate him. I think you said that earlier, you hate him. And I was like, that is a good word because he is, he's just vile. Yeah, I I sort of followed this case a little bit quite loosely over the years because it did drag on for years and years. And as I said, it was only last September that Putman was brought to justice and sent to prison. And I I talked about wanting to cover this. I think I put a post on our Instagram and I don't know if that was around the time of the trial, but it might have even been beforehand. So I'm so glad that I waited really so that this had come to a complete end and and a full circle really. Um, So it's nice to be able to tell this story and it's got lots of ups and downs and twists and turns. But ultimately, Putman was brought to justice for the crimes that he committed and for the damage that he caused. And I think that's a really nice way to to end the episode. Yeah, a really, really interesting episode and a bit different. Yeah. But I really enjoyed that. Thank you for sharing that story, Mark. This is for you, Giles. Yeah. So um, hopefully you enjoyed that episode too. Uh, please do let us know. You can get in touch with us in all of the usual ways. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. And don't forget to check out our show sponsors. So that's loststock.com slash red and also noom.com slash red. Also, you can find us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. We've got loads of fun stuff going on over there. We always say it, but there really is. We've got blog posts that me and Bethan have done about reviews that we've had about the show, where we've been really honest, actually, haven't we, in those in those blog posts? They're really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we've also got bonus episodes where we have normal cases that we cover, but also bonus episodes where we go back and look at the seasons that we've done. We call it a retrospective because we're a bit pretentious and we talk about the episodes. <laughs> we talk about the episodes that we covered, why we covered them and what happened afterwards as well. Um, so, so do check it out. We've got different tiers starting at as little as £1.95 a month. Um, so yeah, do have a look at that. Thank you for joining us, everybody, once again, and we will be back with you next week. See you then. See you then. Bye. Bye.